Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. friends. Happy Monday. I am here in beautiful, hot Topanga. I think we're officially in the uh, summer realm here, or at least very close. I think it's in the 80s today. Had to turn my fan on for the first time in many months. It's funny, I, I know I sound stupid talking about how Southern California has seasons, um, but this really interesting thing happened to me, I think, when I moved here. I grew up on the East Coast, right, uh, just north of New York City. Lived in New York and New Jersey f- until... I always forget when I moved out to California, but I think it was about five or six years ago at this point. Um, and so I was very familiar with real seasons. And uh, then coming out here, I expected there to be no seasons at all, which granted they are much more subtle. But what's interesting is because the seasons are so subtle, I've found myself paying closer attention to the changes. So even just like what happens after, what happens to the ground after it rains or what the clouds look like in October versus June. And where I live, for anyone following me on Instagram, you probably have seen me post my view quite often. Um, But I have this sort of like 180 degree view of uh, part of the canyon in Topanga. And so I see a lot of clouds and I see, I can see the sunrise and the sunset. And it's really interesting how the sky looks and feels different depending on the season. And those aren't things I noticed back East. I think because there were so much more obvious changes like snow and torrential downpours and frigid temperatures. Um, but when everything is sort of, you know, uh, changing, but much more subtly, you start to pay attention to these smaller changes. So I've really enjoyed that about it. And I'm definitely one of those annoying Southern California people who will claim that there are seasons because there are. Anyway, it's quite warm today. I'm a big fan of summer, um, I was born in August, so I think that just heat and sun is something that I feel very comfortable with and alive, and um, it always makes me feel really good when we're heading into those warmer periods. I'm definitely one of those people that would rather be hot than cold. Anyway, uh, aside from weather, which has got to be the most engaging topic of conversation ever, 
Um, a couple of things I wanted to talk about before we get into today's episode. One is I just wanted to comment on the fact that like everybody has a podcast. <laughs> um, and it's definitely a growing trend that I am obviously a part of, not that I'm responsible for the trend, just that I'm jump, I've jumped on the bandwagon for sure. Um, and I hear a lot of people kind of like making fun of the fact that everyone has a podcast and everyone has a voice and like, everyone's just, you know, wanting to be relatively narcissistic and yell their opinions into the podcast sphere. I, I think it's kind of cool. Um, I spent a good deal of my college education um, learning about and reading about public versus private realms. And Michael Warner is an author that I mention a lot on the show. Um, he wrote a book called The Trouble with Normal, which uh, Diana Adams, who is this week's uh, episode, she also recommended that book um, as one of her favorites. He recently came out with a book called... Um, Oh man. Oh, Publix and Counterpublics, which I have, but I haven't read it yet. Um, but he talks about the nature of the public, right? So what is this? We only had the public sphere when the printing press started, right? Which morphed into, um, uh, TV and radio. And, uh, there are all these modes by which we created this public realm, which prior to that, couldn't exist, right? We couldn't broadcast anywhere there, you know, there was not really, um, anything that could be defined as uh, public opinion, for example, right? Everything you had to be there with somebody in order to hear what they had to say. It was a very intimate space, right? Storytelling, etc. And in this world, we have these public realms. We have the ability to broadcast to many different people without being directly in communication with them. And I think that can be a good and a bad thing. It's amazing and why I feel like I'm cool with the fact that people have podcasts because uh, we don't want there to be a monopoly on uh, the public realm. We don't want just a few people or a few corporations to be the ones that are defining um popular opinion, defining culture, defining convention of all sorts. I think it's very useful that in a world that has varying degrees of public realms available and public space available, that we take advantage of this. You know, obviously my hope is that people who are belong to more prejudiced groups and uh, people who aren't as privileged as myself and other, you know, white cisgender people, uh, take up that, a lot of that space, um, than they are now. But I, either way, I think anybody that feels, um, brave enough and compelled enough to say like, Hey, this is who I am. This is my opinion. This is what I feel. These are the people that I find interesting. These are the topics that I find engaging. I think if that's done responsibly, I think that's nothing but a good thing, especially now. Um, I've said a million times one of the biggest reasons I started this show was because when I was going through a lot of shit and kind of deciding what kind of life I wanted to lead, I felt desperate and hungry for people who I could relate to, people who were living lives that I felt I wanted to live. And and one of the reasons I put that off for so long was because I didn't see my version of... um 
my life, the life I wanted to lead represented anywhere, really. Um, I saw it in a few ways, but I didn't see women and I didn't see it was just it was hard. It was hard to find spaces that were accessible um, and digestible and close. And uh, it it was hard. So I decided that I was going to be that for somebody else, hopefully like, Hey, there's cool people out here. Here's the type of life I live here, are my beliefs, and you're not alone. And if you've lived a life where people have told you what you wanted and your goals were unrealistic or fantastical, which I can't tell you how many times I would hear that they're full of shit and don't listen to them. And you can be and do really truly whatever you want to do in this world and have whatever type of relationship and do what have whatever type of sex you want and whatever type of family and community and friends and life and home and all of these things are yours to decide. Um, so I think it's cool. I'm into everyone having a podcast, even if that takes some listenership away from mine and puts it to someone else. I don't care. I think it's awesome. I think it's cool. And I hope that more people feel compelled to speak up and, join groups of friends and people that, um, are doing super awesome shit in the world. And I love the idea that vulner vulnerability breeds vulnerability. I've seen that so much. Um, so I love it. I'm all for it. I'm all for people jumping on the podcast bandwagon. And if you are someone out there who wants to start a podcast, but you don't know how to start, reach out to someone who has one, reach out to me. I'll tell you how to do it. <laughs> I definitely was confused on how it all worked. Um, but it's actually quite easy and I think a lot more productive than like Facebook rants and keeping stuff to oneself. So I don't know, to me, I feel like my podcast is a bit of my own uh, version of journaling, which I don't do. Um, I've done it at certain times in my life, but I recognize that talking was, uh, something I really enjoy and sort of have an endless supply of, like I can talk for hours and hours and hours of pretty much, uh, never gets old for me, uh, probably annoys the shit out of some people in my life, but I love talking and I figured this would be a great means by which to get my thoughts out there and engage with other people. So love it. Love the podcasting thing. Love everyone that is jumping on board. I think it's cool. Um, second thing I wanted to mention, and this fits into my episode today, which I promise I'll introduce in a moment. Um, I wanted to talk briefly about feminism because it comes up in this episode, and I think I've addressed it in a couple other episodes as well, but hasn't haven't really expanded upon it fully. Um, a friend of mine, we've been chatting a lot and and talking about um, masculinity and femininity and power and sex, basically the last several episodes of my podcast. Um, but we've been having a conversation offline about it. And, um, I, I guess in one of my messages, I said something about feeling like I don't define myself as a feminist or consider myself a feminist. And she asked what my hesitation with that was. Um, and, clarified that for her, because I think I had said something like, I feel like a lot of feminist feminism this, these days is very anti-men and I don't relate to that. So I take issue with identifying with a group or a movement that I don't align with fully. I've actually always felt this when I was a kid. I remember I was raised Jewish and, um, I, my mom could definitely vouch for this cause I went crazy about this idea that what really bothered me 
about going to a temple or a church or any place, any space that held beliefs. If I didn't feel aligned with every single one of those beliefs, I didn't feel comfortable in that space. So even if like 98% of the stuff that was said or believed in a temple, I agreed with, if there was 2% that didn't align with me, I felt really terrible um, and inauthentic existing within that place. And so I, I, f I find myself applying that same logic to a lot of definitions and movements these days. Like if it doesn't feel a hundred percent aligned to what I feel and what I believe, I don't really want to be a part of it because I don't want to be a part of anything that proliferates something that I'm uncomfortable with or something that I think is adding to, um, discrimination or prejudice or whatever it is. So the way, you know, and I was at actually at a dinner the other night and I had told someone that I was, they were foreign, uh, from the Netherlands. And I said something about how I studied gender and sexuality in college and they go, like, oh, so you're a feminist. And I was like, no, like, that's not how I feel. And I specifically felt the need to define that because I was talking to someone who wasn't from America because feminism is different in America than it is in other countries. And obviously because I live in America and I'm American, if I say I'm a feminist, people are going to assume that I'm defining myself as like an American feminist. But so the issues that I have with feminism, I think this is um, more so in regard to my generation. Like I think the feminism that my mother, for example, uh, believes in or take took part in, it was a lot more aligned to, to where I might feel comfortable defining myself as that. Um, whereas now within the space of me too, within the kind of like safe space <laughs> trend generation, this whole, what I feel is a victimization of women and, uh, um, a, a way of looking at women, women as not having a ton of power and agency that's the part I don't agree with. And I think the realms uh, within feminism that don't align for me are, I think there's a, a minimization of the difference between men and women. And Diana and I talk about that today in this week's episode, um, that there was this idea that women in order to be equal had to basically become men. So they were no longer just expected to fulfill the you know, traditional feminine roles of caring for the home and having kids and taking care of the house and, you know, being nurturing and this and that, but they also, um, had to take on the man's roles. So they had to get a job and they had to be, um, you know, powerful and they had to, uh, take agency in succeeding and participate in this whole idea of self-reliance. And I'm going to have my job and support it. And like the whole single mom thing. And that's a very American uh, phenomenon. Feminism in other countries was more like, yeah, women have, should have equal rights and be equal, but they're different, right? Like men and women are different. <laughs> they're just different. And I think our trying to deny that or erase the difference between men and women or people who identify as men, people who identify as women, it all goes back to this masculine feminine thing. Like, I don't really care whose body the feminine and the masculine, uh, exist within, but I think it's really important to define those two things as two sides of the same coin, right? And I don't think it's practical. Like, for example, I don't agree 
with this whole push to like allow transgender women to participate in women's sporting events, right? I fully, I don't care what anybody does with their body. I am in full support of trans rights, but it's ridiculous to me that someone who is embodied within the body of a man could argue that because they just identify as a woman should be able to participate in women's sporting events. Like I'm welcoming of someone trying to convince me otherwise, but to me that makes no logical sense. Like obviously that person's going to have, um, have more strength than the women in that competition. For the most part, I recognize there are exceptions. Um, but I think denying some pretty basic differences between masculinity and femininity is, um, backwards. And I think it minimizes femininity and it's feminine, the power that is inherent within femininity itself. So that bothers me. I think, um, the Me Too movement, as I've spoken about a lot, has bothered me. I think it's taken agency away from women. Um, I think by, you know, I like I was watching Bill Maher the other night. I forget. Oh, we were they were talking about Joe Biden and this whole idea of like what, why some, I think Chelsea Handler said something about like, what's the problem with a woman turning around and being like, don't touch me like that? are we incapable of doing that? And one of the men actually interrupted and said, well, why do we have to make the res- the responsibility on the woman? Why can't the man just not do that? And I just, you know, sat there and kind of rolled my eyes and I get it right. Like men shouldn't be doing inappropriate things, but that can coexist with the fact that women have power to say, stop. Like women have power to walk out of a room in many of these circumstances. Another issue we talk about in today's episode is the Aziz Ansari thing. Like, of course, he's probably a shitty date, a shitty guy. Well, I don't know him, but he's probably lacking in some awareness around, you know, how to behave appropriately with women. But that doesn't negate the fact that the woman that he was with had the power to leave and she didn't. He didn't physically assault her. He wasn't keeping her there. Both of these things can exist, right? Men can get better and women can take responsibility. And I really dislike the trend that I see within feminism now that um, acts as if those two things can't coexist or acts as if by me saying that woman could walk out of the room that I'm somehow a rape apologist. I just find it crazy. Totally crazy. Um, so that's my issue with feminine. There's other, you know, aspects to this too. I think if you look at feminism from a cross-cultural perspective, you will be able to recognize that, um, there is a really wide ranging, uh, movement as far as this goes. And I find myself relating a lot more to more foreign forms of feminism that, um, don't attempt to uh, define masculine and feminine as equal and don't um, uh, minimize women's power in any sort of way, right? We we can um, have power in ways that are not masculine, like feminine power is a thing. It doesn't have to look like masculinity. And in fact, it shouldn't. So that's that's my rant it's my rant for the day, but I just wanted to clarify that I uh, have definitely recognized that it's hard to talk about that in a lot of spaces. It's super taboo. Um, so 
I just want to say it because I think it's important. I think other women should feel brave enough to talk about this stuff too. So I don't not consider myself a feminist. I just always feel like I need to provide some clarification and definition to my own personal form of feminism. Um, so, uh, that's all I'm going to say today. Uh, my episode today is with Diana Adams, who I was so grateful and excited to interview. I heard her, uh, do an interview on another podcast a while back. And when I was putting my like initial list together of people that I really wanted to interview, as I mentioned on the show, she was, um, she was one of them. Uh, she's a lawyer. She works with non-traditional families, um, helping to protect and, um, you know, people who are choosing to be in non-traditional relationships and create non-traditional family structures. She also works with, um, women and encouraging, encouraging them to step out of, uh, spaces of victimization, right? Like owning their power. Um, so a lot of this whole like feminism thing we talk about on the show, I won't blabber on too much anymore about that. Um, if you like the show, if you listen to it week after week, um, I would really appreciate if you could help get the word out. So there are a couple ways to do that. You can go to patreon.com slash Anya Cates. You can donate a little bit of money every month. Um, I've definitely been struggling a bit recently with the whole remote recording. I've realized how much different the conversations are than when I have in-person conversations. I think the flow is a lot easier when you're talking with someone face-to-face. -face. So I would really like to be able to do that more and travel, but that takes money and time and this podcast is totally free. So if you want to help support the, the, uh, the podcast and me growing and talking to more people in person and traveling, etc., patreon.com slash Anya Cates. You can donate a little bit of money each month to help. And in uh, return, you will get access to lots of like bonus perks, like epi uh, bonus episodes and t-shirts. And I do a weekly column of inspiration, like an article that uh, I really liked, a piece of artwork, some music, etc. If you don't want to do that, you can also just go into the app that you listen to podcasts in, leave me some stars. I always say leave stars in a review, which you can do, but I forgot that also just hitting the subscribe button is really important. Um, I guess the more people who've subscribed, the more likely the podcast is to like show up in the iTunes store and in search results. So that really, truly takes like two seconds. If you're listening to this right now, pick up your app and hit subscribe. And that would be amazing. Um, and if you're feeling super generous, scroll down a little bit and click five stars. That'll be so cool. And I'll love you forever. I love you forever anyway, honestly. Um, all right, so that's it. I will get into this episode and uh, catch you on the other side. All right. Well, I am here with Diana Adams. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this podcast today. Actually, when I... Uh, first came up with my list of people that I wanted to interview, you were on that list of people. So I'm really grateful that you uh, could take the time today to talk to me. I'm honored. I'm so glad to, to be talking to you. Awesome. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, if you want to just kind of like define yourself a little bit, talk about what you do. And also I'd be really interested to hear what brought you to this work. You're a lawyer and I'm, I'm sure that deciding to go into this line of work as opposed to sort of the traditional I'm going to make lots of money as a lawyer <laughs> process is challenging. So I'd love to hear like how you made that decision and what brought you into this space. Sure. I'll introduce myself a bit more broadly first. I, 
I'm a lawyer and a family mediator. Um, and I, I work with people who are LGBT, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, as well as in um, chosen family forms, polyamorous family forms, platonic family forms. And many of the people who are left out of the same-sex marriage debate in terms of not falling into a monogamous nuclear family model. Um, half of American adults who don't fit that model, who may feel like they are a family with their gay best friend who, with whom they own a house and raise a child or in their polyamorous triad or in their group of friends. Um, and so I'm interested in supporting all of those other kinds of queer family forms. And I've had a, uh, a boutique law firm uh, that's doing law and mediation, mostly trying to help people create contracts out of court for over 10 years in New York City. And I'm now based between New York City and Frankfurt, Germany, where I um, work with Americans living in Europe as well. And I also now have a nonprofit chosen family law center to, speak, to support people who don't have the resources to hire a private attorney to make sure that they get the co-parenting agreement if their co-parenting is three or an platonic uh, partnership, um, as, as also to help people make sure they have agreements for assisted reproductive technology like sperm donor, egg donor agreements, and make sure that people don't go without those really essential agreements to protect their rights when they're going off-road and creating family in their own kind of way. Um, and I'm also a communication educator and uh, teaching at Omega Institute this June with the Omega Women's Leadership Center, Courageous Conversations for Women, which is my emotional and communication uh, skills class for women in particular about assertiveness and um, asking for everything that we want in the world and creating it. Awesome. So that's my that's my intro about who I, who I am. Um, and you asked about um, what... I, uh, how I chose this, um, much less lucrative field rather than traditional law, uh, sort of big law firm, uh, images of what we think of as a lawyer. And for me, I think I went to law school because I grew up as a working class person who wanted to change the world and wanted to do positive social justice work, but felt like as a working class person, I had to have the insurance policy of being able to pay the bills and a law degree made this feel like a viable career path for me and made it feel like something that was going to also give me tools, a, a whole toolbox of ways to actually impact the system as a person who can draft legislation and go to court and write contracts that people that can support people in staying out of court. That actually gives me a whole set of tools to be able to make change and support people that I want to support. And I think that I do this particular kind of work because I, I wanted to do something related to social justice work. And I think it's also critically important to do work that feeds your soul every day. And I think this is an important message because this is something I went all the way through Yale and Cornell Law School um, and knew all about, you know, Western Civ and then read lots of books. But I did not know this life lesson that you also need to think about not just what you'd like to do in the world in an abstract way, what kind of impact you want to make, but what your actual daily life is uh, in that kind of career and then who you are and what you need on a daily basis. So for example, I'm passionate about environmental issues, but I'm not the kind of person who's going to sit in a cubicle and be able to write really dense administrative law, uh, you know, arguments about how we should be changing a minute piece of the EPA code and feel sustained when the world's on fire. Um, I'm a person who needs to be engaging with people who gets a lot of inspiration from working directly with other people. And so I found an area of law, number one, where I got to use my own personal personality and skills to be able to work with people 
I find inspiring to and engage in social justice activism on a person-to-person level in many ways, rather than primarily doing work which doesn't engage with other people, which a lot of lawyering work is. And also, I had to have a career path that gave me some wins as an activist, because I worked in a number of other fields of activism in which it just felt like the world's on fire and we're we're never going to get very far. So, for example, I worked in the world of reproductive uh, reproductive rights in law. Um, and that's an incredibly important area of work that's important to me. But at the same time, primarily what I knew I would be doing for my entire career path is just defending Roe v. Wade. Just, just holding on to Roe v. Wade, just trying to do that. Probably not much else, just Roe v. Wade. Um, and it wasn't like nobody else would do that job because every job had 10,000 applicants. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to pass on this one because it makes me hate people. Another job that made me hate people was doing domestic violence victim representation because it was like it just an ocean of misery and I had a spoon to sort of scoop at the waves as they came at me. And I wasn't going to be able to necessarily stop the problem of violence against women because that has been happening since forever. And it, and it felt like the problems were so great that I wasn't seeing many wins. And similarly, working on environmental issues made me feel like, okay, the world's on fire and nobody really cares. And so for me, working in the world of LGBT issues and poly issues and modern chosen family issues felt like a social justice area where I could actually see some wins. So whereas a domestic violence survivor who's in poverty, who also had multiple barriers to um, advancement and getting out of poverty, such as immigration status, it felt like I was getting people who were coming to me in legal services through the rubric of domestic violence who also had myriad other challenges such that I couldn't necessarily um, fix all of those challenges for them Um, as a lawyer without the, the toolkit of also social workers and, and, you know, fixing broken policy in the United States. Whereas if a polyamorous triad comes to me and wants to figure out how they can all three have a child together and protect their legal rights as best as possible, we don't have a perfect legal system for that, but I can actually help get them on their way. And I think that we will see changes in this field in my lifetime. And that's exciting because as I mentioned with those other kinds of fields, it actually is really dramatically rare that we're seeing this much movement um, just in the past 20 years related to um, issues for same-sex couples in particular, as well as for transgender people. And the United States is really a world leader in this regard. And that is disturbing when you think about how far we still have to go as an LGBT movement in the U.S., but um, it's also really inspiring. And I think there's lots of lessons we can learn from this movement, and it's exciting to be along for the ride. So I'm wanting to be in this movement and pushing it to a bit more of a radical edge in terms of supporting families that are outside of the nuclear family model, as I mentioned. Amazing. Yeah. It's so one of the things that drew me to this in the first place, I think aside from my own personal experience, my dad was gay. So I had this sort of understanding of non-traditional family was also how uh, steeped in nuance and paradox the nature of family is. And I took a course that I talk about a lot in college. It was called uh, both public and private, the social construction of family life. And one of the books that I read was one of Stephanie Kuntz's books is about like the social origins of private life, which was one of the most amazing <laughs> things that I ever read. And she asked this question around, um, and some other authors that I love as well, talk about, you know, whether family is an institution that is uh, per- perpetuating inequality and domination or whether it can be used as a means for social change. And I'm sure you come into that 
issue all the time, right? Is the nuclear family or family in general something that is moving us forward or moving us backward? I'd love to hear you kind of talk about that issue and, and all the stuff that relates to it. I really think of my work supporting families as part of my feminism, because I think that an essential aspect of our feminism today needs to be about relationship choice. We fought a lot about choice over our, our bodies and sort of, our, you know, our sexuality in terms of our physical space boundaries and our reproductive rights access. Um, but in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, sort of not having unwanted intrusions on our body medically or in terms of sexual assault, you know, that's sort of level one bot- bodily autonomy. But as we work through those issues and seek uh, even greater advancement as feminists, I think it's essential that we also think about relationship choice and family choice, uh, being able to have an element of choice um, and a set of real options about the kinds of families that we want to create, particularly as women as mo- and mothers, because I really think that many women have been coerced into sexual relationships as a means of economic support for themselves, as a means of support economically for their children, and um, as the only socially acceptable way that they could live in the world as women. And many women in the world are still experiencing that. I think we're seeing a glimmer in the United States in the past 30 years of women being able to break out of that. And people um, crow about how terrible it is that our divorce rate has increased. I don't think that's all necessarily due to a rapid increase in problems with the institution of marriage um, as much as women being able to have a car and a job and get the hell out when they want to get the hell out and not be coerced into staying in marriages that don't work for them. And so I think, I think of this as a, as a feminist issue and see it through my lens as a, as a woman and a femme, but also I see it through my rubric and lens as a, as a queer person who wants to be able to create family in my own way. Um, and wants to take some of the queer critique of marriage, um, as well as the critique of patriarchy, and, and think about marriage critically as a next step in the LGBTQ family movement, because that, I think, has been a parallel movement all along with the same-sex marriage movement. And I've straddled both of those fields because I've also been somebody who's been pushing along same-sex marriage as something that we absolutely have to have because we have over a thousand different rights and responsibilities that come along with marriage. Um, and because we shouldn't have um, a situation in which a legal status, which is really a legal financial status that has so many rights and benefits in our society, um, has the state as a gatekeeper based on whether we meet some sort of Judeo-Christian um, relationship model. You know, having having a um, evaluation of the merits of your relationship be the determining factor on whether you get all of these um, inheritance rights and immigration rights and share health insurance and be able to pay your taxes together um, feels really inappropriate. It feels like an absolute intrusion of the, of church and state, clearly. Um, but also, I really feel like it has been sexually coercive to women to be pushed into romantic relationships that they didn't necessarily want to be in. And I, I came from a background of working class women who 
um, really impressed upon me as a small child. Don't ever get yourself in the situation that I'm in right now. Always make sure that you have your own access to money, that you feel that you can support yourself. Um, and don't ever feel like you have to stay in a relationship that isn't working for you because I can't get out. And I heard that a lot from women in my family, from my aunts, um, from my, my mother and her friends. And um, it was something that I think was passed on to me at almost an epigenetic level. I have, um, I have anger and I have grief for the many women I love who came before me who never were able to live the lives they wanted to because of feeling like they were trapped in the nuclear family model. And I think within that nuclear family, within that private sphere, what had looked like positive, you know, uh, idealized, you know, nuclear families where everyone's putting up the Christmas tree and everyone's sending their annual card and everyone is putting on the performance of what family looks like in a public way. In private, I think you had a lot of women who are really suffering, who are really isolated, who felt like they couldn't get out. Um, and so I really feel like the nuclear family is best as a choice. And I think that um, we've taken a number of steps in the trajectory of what marriage and romantic relationships and family structure look like along the way. And Stephanie Kuntz is one of my heroes and uh, I love her work as well. And, you know, we, we had a trajectory of marriage being an institution that was primarily a practical institution, you know, so that we would know who is inheriting and who gets the cows and who gets the land um, and, uh, you know, which children you have to inherit to so that we've structured this within marriage. And there wasn't necessarily an expectation that, um, people were totally isolated in that couple. Um, and there also wasn't necessarily an expectation that that there would be total sexual exclusivity. There was expectation that the wife would be so that the, the husband knew whose kids he was feeding and paying for. But there wasn't necessarily an expectation that we're having this sort of lifelong monogamous romance. And as we reevaluated um, the family, somehow we got to a place where rather than questioning sexual exclusivity for women as well, we made the whole thing monogamous and where then, and we also further isolated people into this nuclear family situation so that we've put all of our expectations that we used to have of what marriage was. And we've added on this whole level of, you know, you also want self-actualization and you want a lifelong financial partner and partnership and co-parenting. Um, and also we're going to put the two of you out in the suburbs by yourselves. Good luck. Pretend everything looks great. Um, to you becomes an alcoholic first, I feel like is a lot of the families that I grew up with. And so, um, I also really noticed that as a feminist, that there were so many women around me who were incredibly powerful and self-possessed, but that they would reach a certain age. And it was like, they just had to go on match.com and pick the, you know, the, the stablest guy they found in the first three months, because I'm 40 and I want to have a baby. And that's what you got to do if you want to have a baby. Um, and I, I just really feel strongly that there are other options and I want to support people in, in um, elevating those other options. Um, raising public awareness, um, doing trainings with lawyers and therapists and professionals so that those people will be aware when they're speaking to clients that they can be understanding and respectful and try to actually reduce stigma through that kind of education with professionals who serve these uh, families who are same sex, but also non-monogamous, as I mentioned, multi-parent families, um, the reality of grandparent-led families um, and kinship groups of women in many um, indigenous as well as women of color communities. So I, I think it's um, 
it's it's valuable for us to see all the families that actually have been out there all along and and more and more we're we're seeing other kinds of family forms and i think it's valuable to actually spotlight them and highlight the ways um that children can do just as well people can just find just as much fulfillment all of the things that we think of as family um of you know fidelity and being there for one another through the logistics, but also through the deep moments of your life, being there for, you know, caretaking, being there as a support system, being there as um, a celebration system. I think that those are things that can happen in a model that's outside of a romantic, monogamously paired, uh, pair bonded for life couple. Totally. I'd love to come back to the feminist link to this because I think that's really important and something definitely deserves further exploration. But I would love to hear in relation to you saying you pick this field because you think that you will see and have seen some movement in terms of progress. And do you feel like we are moving in a way that's going to expand the definition of marriage or deconstruct marriage in and of itself and, and return more to this kind of idea of kinship groups and community, especially in my generation, I see all over the place that people are like, this doesn't make any sense. The, the things that I could do if I existed within what feels like where I'm supposed to be like this instinctual community is so expanded versus what I could accomplish on my own being, you know, patriarchically self-reliant and in a nuclear family. Um, so do you feel like that's where it's moving or do you feel like legally there are, that is a really large mountain to climb and that expanding the definitive definition of marriage is more kind of along the lines of where we're going. I think that rather than try to squeeze more people into the institution of marriage, I think that we need to come up with other kinds of labels and legally recognized family forms because marriage inherently has a Judeo-Christian meaning. It's a sacrament and it's not just a legal uh, status. And so that makes it really difficult to uh, squeeze other people in when it does have this Judeo-Christian, uh, you know, set of sort of a morality around what it means outside of the legal system. I think that makes it really messy in the legal system to begin with. And I'd like to see government getting out of being the arbiter of whether you have a valid marriage because that, that doesn't, it doesn't feel like the business of government. So I, I am more on the side rather than saying, okay, I'm going to be the first person to get a, a polyamorous triad legally married in the United States. I'm more interested in deconstructing and parsing out some of those rights that are attached to marriage um, so that marriage does not have to be some, such a lifeline for so many people and that we can really be entering into it both with full awareness, informed consent, um, and with other options. And a few ways that I'd like to see that is that, for one thing, I think we don't have a social welfare state that's viable in this country that supports um, women and motherhood. And so you still see this sort of clamoring anxiety for a lot of women that's really real that if they want to have a child, they have to sort of hitch their wagon to someone because they aren't going to be able to do this on their own because our social welfare state is basically privatized within the nuclear family. And so that is the way that I think the government has really let down women and mothers in particular because it is... Um, privatizing those dependency relationships rather than being dependent 
on the government for a few years while you're staying home and while you're being paid to stay home, perhaps like much of Scandinavia. And I live in, I live in Europe. Um, it, it is, you are, you are allowed 80% of your salary to stay home for a year in Germany and in many other places from the government. You don't need to marry some guy who isn't good to you. It's fine if you don't want to um, get married if you want to, but you don't need to. And it's interesting. I've spoken to young men who are in the dating pool in Scandinavia and it's like, you know, a woman might get pregnant and has absolutely no interest in getting partnered because she doesn't have to, um, could say living in a group of other women could just be on her own that, you know, marriage could then be much more of a choice. Basically, if we had universal health care and didn't have to get married because one person lost their health insurance, um, or isn't going to be able to buy health insurance because of some, you know, because it's so expensive for them. Um, or because you're getting pregnant and you're, you know, in order to be able to afford to have a child, um, you know, you need to be able to have two incomes and one person who's attached and there and ready because daycare and early childhood care is not intended to be able to be afforded on one salary. So I think there's a lot of ways that um, marriage has been um, emphasized for so many people because it's a financial necessity because we don't have these other forms of support. And I'd like to see a lot more of those. I think then in another way, there, there's also then, okay, if you are getting into a relationship, I think it's valuable to think about what kind of relationship you actually want to get into. It, is, do you want to be getting legally married, which comes with all of these thousand different meanings that people don't even know. It's the most important agreement they've ever made, but they have no idea what those terms are. So you're really becoming a legal financial unit so that if, if one person goes to rehab and racks up a $500,000 bill, you're splitting it if that person can't pay for it. If one of you goes off and gets debts and can't pay for it, your spouse pays for it. You're really that person's social, social welfare state of two, right? So you are there to be responsible so that the government doesn't have to step up and do that. And, you know, and, on the, and conversely, if my investment account is growing and growing and growing and I go off and buy real estate on the side, even if my, part, if my spouse's name is not on the deed or if they had nothing to do with the money that I just made, I'm splitting it with them if we get divorced because what's mine is mine. It, what's mine is theirs, you know? So I, I think that may or may not be something that people are intending when they get married. And I think people don't even understand that. So I think that people need to understand what marriage really means. And I actually think that maintaining domestic partnership um, is something really valuable. And I've been somebody pushing that domestic partnership should be maintained when marriage is achieved in a state. Oftentimes civil unions or domestic partnership has just sort of fallen by the wayside because it's like, oh, we don't need that anymore. Everyone can get married. But when we had domestic partnerships in many places, um, Local areas might have intended for it to be for same-sex couples, but then you saw, you know, two best friends or two sisters getting a domestic partnership or, you know, two older widows getting a domestic partnership. Um, any two people who feel like, okay, um, the commitment at that point was usually it differed by state and by city, the definition of domestic partner, but usually it was, um, we agree to be each other's legal person you know, I can be your emergency contact and you can be mine and we'll look out for each other. We're going to share a household and you can share my health insurance. That's it. Right. Yeah. Doesn't mean you have my, you get to inherit half my trust. If I die, nothing like that. Um, you know, just this is, this is what it means. It means this more limited set of things. And that's something that you could decide to change in five years. And it would be a huge hassle. And you don't have to separate out your finances, you know? Um, 
And I think that's actually really valuable. And we saw a lot of other people wanting that and actually choosing that instead of marriage, actually preferring that, thinking it would be less complicated. And so I think it's possible with that, then that brings up a few other options, that there are people who might be absolutely in love who don't have to blend their finances. And then there are people who are two people who think of themselves as platonic partners, two very close friends who want to band together or three close friends who want to band together. And why shouldn't they be able to share health insurance, right? Um, if my sister, for example, had breast cancer and I wanted to share my health insurance with her, why shouldn't I be able to do that with her rather than some guy I just met two months ago and then married last month and I'm going to divorce in three years? Why do I get to share health? Why does, why do I share health insurance with him and not with a person that I might say is much more important to me? If my parent were dying and I wanted to share my health insurance, why couldn't they be my designated person? Um, why are we, you know, I think we should be extending that sort of privilege to a more flexible, you know, you can pick another person to share this with or not extend that based on relationship and just say all citizens get great health care. Imagine that. <laughs> Much of the developed world does that and they don't go bankrupt. Right. Yeah. And so aside from like moral and Judeo-Christian reasons for why these institutions came about and why we're holding on to them, what other hurdles are you running into? Like who, what and who are these institutions benefiting aside from just being relics from our past? I think that, um, I think that the institution of marriage is really propped up by, um, our very um, go-it-on-your-own, somewhat libertarian uh, spirit as Americans um, that is really against having social welfare state and into personal freedom and personal responsibility, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, go figure it out on your own. I think that that has created part of the lack of social welfare state that has propelled us into this situation and then has been compounded by the way that corporations have taken on so much power and control in our, um, in our government and become the social welfare recipients instead of us. Um, so I think, I think that's one big factor is the way that we're economically set up. I think also though, that much of the world of social science has a hard time even thinking outside the box about any other kind of family form. And there's a lot of anxiety. I think there's a lot of well-meaning anxiety among politicians as well as social science researchers about, you know, what would happen? Would there be um, sort of chaos if people aren't organized this way? And a lot of the, a lot of debates about pushing people into the institution of marriage are partly because it settles people down. It, you know, it breaks people into a world of like, okay, go and go into your nuclear family. And this is a way people would talk about is this is a way to keep like men from being drunk, you know, in the street. This is a way to like keep women from having children with lots of different men. There's sort of a fear of the populace. There's a fear of, of what people would do if they're free. And um, it makes it more alarming for statisticians to think about how, how would we be organizing society if not around this nuclear family? And so I think, I think there's some alarm there about the unknown, which leads to a pull toward the status quo. And then I think also you see this um, quite a bit with more conservative as well as mainstream thinkers um, in social science that they will talk about how, you know, there's lots of studies that say children need stability of parenting figures. And so 
they will then jump to, and therefore we must have marriage for parents, you know? Um, and then, all, you know, if, if a single mother household, you know, children do poorer, why is that? It must be because she's not married instead of because of the fact that we don't provide an economic and social systems such that single mothers can make it and that many, many have a very difficult time um, supporting themselves economically and these kids end up in poverty. And imagine that all of these problems that they're attributing to the fact that this woman is not married are also attributable to poverty. Um, and the fact that your mother's absent because she's working three job, jobs trying to keep you from being homeless. Um, so I, I think that we mistake um, marriage as the only form of stability. And so you see that time and time again, sort of these long suppositions about how, why stability is so important for kids. And then just a one sentence jump to therefore marriage, because I mean, what else would there be? So what we actually, I think, could be looking at is other forms of stability and actually creating a financial life and a co-parenting life based on romance isn't necessarily the only way to do that. Because as anybody who's been in a romance knows, the heart wants what the heart wants and the heart sometimes makes bad decisions, you know? So there are people that I have felt a pull of attraction to who I sure as hell didn't need to spend 20 years raising a kid with just because we had a really steamy six months. Um, I think particularly for people who feel this urgency, um, those women who are like, I'm turning 40 and I need to get married, you know, in, in six months, I have people that I know who've gotten married to someone they've known for less than six months. And frankly, I'm a divorce attorney. Um, and those marriages don't work out very well. And I'm astonished sometimes by the people who come to me who hadn't actually known them, each other very well before they got married saying, you know, I'm a scientist and the person I married is anti-vaccine and I can't even imagine that they're anti-vaccine and we want to have a child together. And I, I, I don't even respect them anymore. And I'm like, you didn't talk about this. You, you got married to have children and you didn't even talk about that. Or, or one person is vehemently against homeschooling and one person is, or one person wants to raise a kid's Jewish or one person wants kids and the other one doesn't, or one person's terrible with money. Um, one person has a foot fetish and the other person's very vanilla. I mean, so many things that could come up in when you're making a decision of like, will this person be my lover and my financial partner? And then if I want to have kids, my co-parent for the rest of my life, people are rushing into this decision. It's very easy to get into and very messy and sticky to get out of. Instead, what if somebody were to say, you know what, rather than rush into this, I'm going to with somebody, you know, because I want to have a baby rather than rush into this. What if I co-parented with my sister? What if I co-parented with my gay best friend from college? You know, what if I decided not to find a co-parent that I'm going to have to divorce in six months because we don't know each other very well. And so I think we've had this mistake that marriage will magically equal stability even if the people don't know each other very well. Um, and right now, you know, we're having the, the, the number fluctuates and people debate it, but around 50% of marriages in, in many groups of people are, are ending in divorce. And so, you know, if any, if, if anybody was putting out a product and 50% of the time it was failing, you start questioning the product and thinking, Hmm, is this really working? So I'm feeling like, you know, while divorce can be a positive thing sometimes because longevity is not the only marker of a solid relationship, I think also we are propelling ourselves into marriage because we think it's the, it's the ideal. And I think that we have this 
um, some people call it the paradox of prevalence, that um, there can be a paradox that everybody thinks, you know, okay, monogamy is the way to go. That's the gold standard. That's what you should do. Even though I and every other person over 25 I know has been part of an affair at some point, right? Either they've been the person who's, you know, either they've, you know, been with a person who shouldn't have been doing that or, or they cheated once or they weren't able to do it, but you know, what what we should, but we all should, but we all should. Um, and, and, and why are we banging our heads against the wall to try to make relationship systems and a marriage system, um, work for everyone as the one size fits all model when it clearly isn't working for everyone. So I would really love to be able to see people, um, create, you know, co-parenting relationships or create a um, financial partnership and be able to file that the way that you file LLC paperwork, right? I'm taking on financial um, liability with this other person, with these three other people. We're going to buy a building together and we're going to share some health insurance and nobody's asking whether we're having sex with each other. It doesn't really matter because I just said, I'll pay my taxes with you. Great. Why isn't that enough? Why don't we do that with relationships as well? Why don't we have other models to choose from? And I think it would actually give everybody, even the people who actually want to have a a monogamous um, nuclear family marriage and 2.5 kids, God bless, go for it. Um, You know, I think it would actually be beneficial for those people as well to have at least a moment, if nothing else, at City Hall when they're choosing, oh, do we want to legally have a legal marriage? That means all of these things we traditionally expect, or do we want to just have a domestic partnership where we don't actually share our finances? Oh, I didn't even know we share our finances when we get legally married. So I I think that that would be a helpful thing to have other choices so that we're making a more conscious choice. Right. Cross-culturally, I know you mentioned a little bit in terms of um, marriage that that other countries uh, have a lot better legal rights when it comes to these things, especially with women raising kids on their own, taking time off. Are there, aside from like remaining hunter gatherer societies, uh, cross-culturally ways that you've seen the structure of family be expanded in a way that you're kind of looking to, to, to do as well? Like, are there other countries that have are kind of starting to move in this direction as well in a way that seems promising? It's actually really fascinating because I feel like it's, uh, I don't actually see any other country mm. that is taking a lead in a really dramatic way. But what I see is a patchwork. I see, um, a massive pros and cons chart, uh, of, of places where, you know, each place is doing one piece of something well, right? So for example, um, in France, they've had a uh, Paxis role uh, in a child's life where you are legally a friend of the child and you are not a legal parent, but you are officially a legal friend of the child, meaning that you are an adult who has a positive relationship with that child, which could help you then be able to visit the child in the hospital or take the child to the doctor um, or be an interested person if something's wrong with the child. And that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think that it it is absolutely wonderful to sort of be able to acknowledge that there are people in the child's life who are not, um, complete strangers and also aren't a mom or a dad. And that we could have people who are, uh, you know, have some role in the child's life, right? If I lived with a partner, 
you know, if I was a single mother and I lived with a partner for five years of the child's life and we split up, that person would still have a role in the child's life, even if there's no legal title. And this is one idea of a legal title that could work for them. So I think that's one piece, for example, that I would take from France. Um, whereas I feel like France actually is an incredibly patriarchal society where a lot of women in France feel like they live like the 1940s or 50s. And I can't walk through Paris without getting physically assaulted because it's just, it's, it's a different world. Um, and, um, the level of chauvinism that's accepted is, is like absolutely mind boggling, but they got the Paxis thing, right? Um, you know, and then I think that in, um, in Scandinavia, as I mentioned, I think there's really the model of what a social welfare state could be. Um, and that that is incredibly positive. And I also think it's been really positive to see some things like the um, gender neutral elementary programs that are in Sweden, um, where kids don't even, all kids are hen as their pronoun instead of having to pick a pronoun, they can pick it when they're older. I mean, those are wonderful novel ideas. However, I haven't in those countries seen an organized polyamorous movement or movement for families the way that we have in the United States. So I feel like I, I have the um, desire to sort of pick the pieces that are working in the different places um, and, and join them together. And um, I'm excited about being able to be involved really widely in Europe as well as in the United States. I'm part of an international group of top LGBT family lawyers who are serving um, same-sex couples and also uh, people who are um, using assisted reproductive technology like egg donor, sperm donor, surrogates. Um, and in the United States, we have this network and I represent New York State and we have a really wonderful nationwide network of people supporting LGBTQ families. Um, and now I am the director for Europe of our European group, which has the top lawyers from each country um, who are coming together often for the very first time to connect and to figure out how we could have more of a pan-European movement. Um, we have a group in the UK, we have a group in Canada. We just had our first meeting a few weeks ago in South America for the first time. So we're really trying to create this worldwide movement of lawyers who can, who can collaborate and share their experiences. Um, and sometimes part of what's really fascinating is that bringing people together um, you hear just how much we perceive family differently and how that has led us in different directions and led us to different places. So, for example, um, it really feels like the feminist movement in the United States went in a different direction, really diverged from the feminist movement um, in Germany and France and Scandinavia. Whereas in the United States there was this sort of World War II emphasis, like women can do the same job as, man, as a man, I'm basically the same as a man, just we want equality at work and emphasized equality and emphasized going to work. And in Europe, the feminist movement diverged and went more in a direction of women are different and special and are mothers and nobody can raise a child like a mother can. Women and men are really different. And because we're different, you should give women extra benefits when they're mothers. And so with this different uh, movement, you see what to me as an American urban professional mom feel like very old fashioned gender roles. Um, you still see many more women um, who are financially dependent and who are staying at home. Um, you know, there's much more of an emphasis on stay at home motherhood 
um, in Western Germany in particular. And um, so that's, that's really, it feels very different. Um, and women then have the, the freedom and the financial support from the government to stay home. Uh, so that feels really different. And then that impacts how we think about um, the changing family. So then gay men in Europe have not pushed as hard to uh, be parents together. There hasn't been as huge of a movement of gay dads in Europe because of this, I think, historical emphasis on motherhood being the way to go. Um, and then also as we get into assisted reproductive technology um, and and these other kinds of modern families, for instance, with lesbian couples, it's very frequent that one is going to be the biological mother and the other is, it has no biological tie to the child but gets legal status. In the United States, it's much easier for us to, in many places, accept the non-biological mom as equal. But I feel like in, um, in much of uh, Europe, there's still this emphasis that like, well, but everybody knows the biological mother is really the, 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 the top and nobody else could beat that. Right. So, <clears throat> yeah. Um, I think that could be, you know, we're, we're in a really different place. And so um, that's part of my thought, you know, as I think sort of cross-culturally, uh, that it's, it's really fascinating to take these lessons from other places. And also we're in really different contexts. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a perfect segue also to go back and talk about this whole, that this working to redefine family is in effect feminism to some extent. And I think in especially American feminism, because I see this all the time, it's like women are starting to be like, wait a second, I can't do all of these different things. I can't go to work. I can't be a mom. I can't, we need to expand this. I need more support. I need community. I need like, this is impossible. Um, so I assume I, like that a lot of that factored into a lot of the work you're doing in regard to the courageous conversations and the intersection between like family and mother wounding. And I would love to hear you expand on that a little bit and, and where you see that going as re in regard to like empowering women in this space for them to say, like, just kidding. <laughs> this is not working at all anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really see um, the issue of being able to choose family and choose relationship that you want to be in, choose whether and how to parent. I see those as, as I mentioned, feminist issues and overlapping with queer issues, you know, issues of, of, you know, being able to love who we want, accept our identities and our orientations. And also um, as a race issue, because these issues all impact women of color more adversely or queer people of color more adversely. So I think that it's valuable for all of us to recognize the ways that we're connected. And in some ways, the project's, project areas that I am supporting in Chosen Family Law Center might feel like strange bedfellows, communities that have never realized that they have connection or should feel like they're allied. So we're working with transgender people on name change projects, and we're also doing platonic co-parenting, and we're also wanting to work with multi-generational uh, family support in the Black community. And those groups of people may not have thought that they had anything to do with themselves or with polyamorous people who are over here um, who are wanting to create you know, three parent families. So I think it's valuable that we all realize that we, ha we have allies in this and that so many people um, are questioning and, and feeling challenged by the expectations that we have around family. I think particularly this is something that I see around me all the time as a professional woman and a mom. Um, you know, it's something that's 
constantly part of my own uh, my own life and awareness in the world that I am a professional woman running an international business and a nonprofit, and I'm also um, a primary parent, and I end up doing a lot of momming, and I don't have an extended family around me uh, who are giving me help, and if I want help, I have to pay for it. Um, and I see people all around me absolutely swamped, and this is the kind of thing that affects people all along the socioeconomic spectrum because there are people who are wealthy enough to hire help who still feel like they have a running stream of strangers coming in and out of their household and don't necessarily have support systems that are incredibly lonely in terms of their own personal lives. Um, I think that being able to hire help is a terrific thing, but I think there's also the possibility that we actually have kinship networks and other people who feel like family that we could rely on. I feel like we have replaced the extended family by, you know, replacing grandma and our auntie and our friend who might've lived with us or next door to us by a rotating cast of people that we hire and pay for and commodified those kinds of relationships um, rather than, you know, creating family with people. And I think both ways are valid, but it'd be nice to have the option to also create family because I think that disproportion of the challenges of the expectation for nuclear families fall on women. And then also um, trying to fit into this messy space are those um, same-sex couples and are the people who are challenging monogamy and are the people who want to be able to create family outside of a romantic relationship. So I, I feel like it's valuable to open up all of those conversations. And I think that's um, one of the ways that this ties in to my work with women's empowerment, with the courageous conversations work. Um, I feel like it is incredibly valuable and crucial for women to be able to be stepping into asking for as much as they really want and, to, and want to create in the world and not feeling like we need to be completely boxed in by expectations. And I think that there's a lot of dissatisfied women and we aren't necessarily all um, brainstorming what we would like to create instead of what's not working for us. And so I'm wanting to be part of that brainstorming, both on the policy level, the family structure level, as well as actually in communities of women working through the emotional skills and the communication skills that lead us to be able to have these bold conversations with people around us about um, what I frame with courageous conversations is often, you know, those essential issues of life um, that don't get discussed that are the most important things to discuss, like what we want with our sexuality, like, you know, what we want our death experience to be like and who we want to be with us, what we want to happen if we become disabled, um, how we want to parent the kinds of life that we hope to live um, in our wildest dreams, the kind of family we hope to live with. I, I think that we need to be able to talk through those kinds of conversations. And the way that I think of mother wound sometimes a little bit differently than some people do. I often hear mother wound as a term used when somebody has had an absent um, mother or a neglectful mother, a mother who was not emotionally available. And I think there's also that more expanded um, idea of mother wound that I think of. Um, I had an absolutely um, wonderful mother whom I completely adored who passed away seven months ago. And I feel a wound from her of the grief that she had and the disappointment that she had that she didn't have the opportunities that she deserved. And I feel that disappointment from my grandmother who had seven children and said she didn't know where they were even coming from, what was making them happen until she got to the third. And 
I feel that in you know the women I grew up with who themselves are now feel pretty trapped in relationships they don't want to be in because we're in sort of a treadmill of, okay, I, I need to get married if I want to find acceptance in the world. We saw so many women before us um, suffer through that. And I feel like I have an epigenetic rage. I have some of the trauma of those women who came before me and want to do whatever I can to um, create a different conversation around, around those kinds of issues and actually work with women who are in front of me to help them develop skills. And that's why I love the programming that I do at Omega, which I think for many of the women who attend is a way of um, thinking through how they want to create the relationship that they want, how they want to step into the role that they would like to have as a boss. Many of us have never actually had to give anybody critical feedback before. Many of us are in situations where now we have to be asking uh, for how much we should be receiving as a speaker's fee or asking for what we think our salary should be at a new job and don't actually have the skills within us to ask for everything that we deserve. Um, and frankly, I'm really engaged in the conversation around Me Too in terms of what's next. Um, and I do restorative justice facilitation to uh, talk through some of the really difficult situations of harassment and sexual assault. And we want to address what's happening in the problem with men primarily. But I think that we also need to address a challenge that's really difficult to talk about in the community of women that many of us, particularly in our 20s, have sat through Aziz Ansari situations where it's like, I was hating what was happening. I thought I could get out of there soon. I thought I could just shut up and sit through it. I thought if I just gave him a hand job that it would be over faster. Um, what has happened to us and how can we undo it that we are in situations in which we don't feel like we find a voice for ourselves to defend ourselves until we've gone through 10 years of those experiences. Like I did. I, I would like to prevent other people from having to go through those kinds of experiences to develop assertiveness, to develop a great sense of boundaries and what I actually want in terms of my career, in terms of my relationship, in terms of my sexuality. I think that many women learn by, by trauma how to speak up for themselves and I would like to be part of short, shortcutting that and, and talking with younger women about what we can be doing to develop those skills now and undoing some of the pain of our mothers and grandmothers who didn't have those skills, For sure. didn't have those opportunities. Yeah, I often talk about like this misunderstanding that by taking responsibility for our role in those dynamics, that that somehow feels disempowering when I think it's actually <laughs> empowering that like we have a role, we have a responsibility. It doesn't mean we're to blame, but we actually have the means by which to opt out of these situations that I think at times we feel like we have no control over. Um, right. So I and, I, and I think it's, it's become dangerously taboo yeah, to even totally. talk about that. For sure. Um, it's my whole it, podcast. It, it, yeah. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, anytime, even in the, with the Aziz Ansari situation, just for example, with that article, with the accusation about him, you know, everybody's like, you know, anybody who says anything, that's like, you know, it's really unfortunate for her that she didn't feel like she could leave and then, you know, everybody is like, you're a rape apologist. Like you're saying it's her fault, right? We need to be able to hold space for complexity and nuance and to be able to say, he did a shitty, terrible thing. He's a horrible date and probably a shitty guy. I don't know. But, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's the issue of him. And there's the issue of the way that men behave and what's acceptable. But also then there's the issue of let's think about ourselves and how many of us found that situation relatable. I found that situation relatable to when I was 25 um, yeah. 
And like I said, I, you know, I think that it's also possible to develop the skills to find in ourselves the confidence to walk out of a room. Yeah. And that's very difficult for many of us who, like myself, were taught to be people pleasers, who were taught to make other people happy, who were taught to subvert our own needs for other people. That's where that, you know, okay, well, you know, I, I guess it'll be easier if I just, if I just sit through this terrible thing that's unpleasant, if I just sort of dissociate for a little bit, that'll make it go through, I'll, I'll get through this faster. Uh, you know, we've all learned that. And I think we have to do like a really intense, explicit collective unlearning. And that's what I teach in my Courageous Conversations class. Amazing. So I could probably keep going forever, but I know you have to go. So before that happens, um, I asked all my guests if they could recommend, which is, this is a very hard question, but one book that really impacted you whether around this work or, or anything in your life, what would that book be? And then secondly, where can people find you and support what you're doing? Oh my God. I love books. How could you do this to me? I know. I know. It's really cruel. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm going to be Polly everything and give three books really okay, quick. Okay. Love it. <laughs> so I absolutely love um, Stephanie Kuhn's marriage, a history and anything written by her. She is absolutely phenomenal um, and really unpacks. I think a lot of our assumptions about marriage um, and then I'll do another one, which is The Trouble with Normal by Michael Warner, which yes. I think really presents <laughs> my, uh, you know, a lot of my perspective on, okay, we don't all have to fit into the same-sex marriage, you know, clear family model. We also, as a queer community, could be challenging uh, some of those conventions. Um, and then third, I really love Esther Perel, and she's a collaborator and mentor of mine. Um, and I really love her book, Mating in Captivity, as well as her new book, State of Affairs, which are about how we keep erotic uh, connection alive in long-term relationships and how we're sort of putting everything that we ever could want into marriage, including self-actualization and how we're sort of challenging modern marriage. And many people are really struggling with it. And we're not talking about it. And I think that book is applicable to everybody um, who also are in heterosexual monogamous relationships. I think it's useful for everyone. Um, for sure. So I will tell you how to reach me. I think it is um, quite easy to find me on Twitter at Diana Adams ESQ, which means Esquire lawyer. Um, and also my law firm website, dianaadamslaw.net and uh, at courageousconversations.work, which is my uh, platform for the empowerment work and the Omega work. And through um, those, you'll also see lots of information about my new nonprofit. Amazing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This was a really great conversation. So thanks. Thank you so much for this great conversation and for your great thoughts and questions, Anya. Yeah. I look forward to keeping the dialogue. Thanks. You too. Okay. Take Bye. care. Bye. Hello again. Thanks for listening to that episode. Uh, today I'm going to play you out with a song. I'm going to play you an Ani DeFranco song because, you know, I can be a feminist sometimes. I can play some Ani on the podcast. Um, I'm going to play a song called Recoil, which I really love. And I think if you listen to the lyrics, there are a lot of like interwoven themes around community and loneliness and relationships and, um, ancestral lines and being a daughter and lots of cool stuff. Um, I, I like a fair bit of Ani DeFranco's music. Um, this song is called Recoil. If you want to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash 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 Anya Cates or go into iTunes, click five stars, click subscribe. If you're feeling super generous, leave a review. It'd be awesome. All of your support 
means the world to me, though, honestly. Just listening in general, telling your friends, anything and all of it um, means a lot. So thank you. Thank you for sticking around, and I will talk to you next week.
written songs Taking one breath at a time Nothing much going on